This is the EPFR Exchange Podcast. All opinions expressed by Cam, Kirsten, or our podcast guests are solely of their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of EPFR. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Hello, everyone. I'm Kirsten Longbottom from EPFR's research team, and I'm joined on today's exchange podcast by EPFR Research Director Cameron Brandt and Elizabeth Levy, the head of ESG strategy from Trillion Management. Welcome, Liz. Hi, thanks. Today, we will be discussing how the ESG theme is currently playing out in the mutual fund industry and some of the challenges it faces as well. Um, Environmental, social, and governance issues are certainly front and center right now. From flooding in China to wildfires in the U.S. and Europe, there are few corners of the world that aren't wrestling with climate extremes. Um, Evidence of social stresses is equally widespread, and leaders everywhere are wrestling with the best way to transition to a cleaner, more equitable future. So before we dive in, I'd like to welcome Liz to our show and ask her to tell us a little bit about her background and her ties to ESG. Yeah, Kirsten, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm glad to to be speaking with you all today. Uh, So I'm a domestic equities portfolio manager and the head of ESG strategy at Trillium Asset Management. Trillium was founded in 1982 as the first dedicated socially responsible investment advisor by Joan Bavaria, who then went on to found uh, several uh, industry organizations such as Ceres and US SIF. Today, we combine our ESG integrated investment approach with active and engaged ownership to help clients achieve impact with their investment portfolios. I started my career 20 years ago uh, doing what we would now call the ESG research component. Uh, My background, I have a degree in environmental management, and I was really interested uh, back then as an idealistic youth about how to involve companies in solving environmental challenges. So as I was doing that work, uh, I got my CFA along the way, and now I'm a portfolio manager who also has responsibility for our overall ESG integration practices. So I've lived through a lot of different roles and changes in this field, and I'm excited to talk about it. That's quite an impressive background. So thank you. Cam, to to get the ball rolling, can you give us a quick overview from EPFR's perspective of the SRA ESG space and what shifts you've been seeing over the past 18 months? Sure. Well, back in 2018, there was a spectacular liftoff in flows into the SRI ESG equity funds that we track. In fact, between the uh, beginning of uh, 2019 and uh, February of 2022, we only recorded two weekly outflows in that whole period. Uh, and I, at that point, was starting to refer the ESG theme as pixie dust for fund flows. It was so reliably uh, positive. That dynamic has changed a bit, uh, really, since uh, the the first quarter of last year. And flows, while still more often than not positive, have become markedly more choppy, uh, over certainly over about the past uh, 12, 14 months. And in fact, in March, we had the first monthly outflow uh, since January of 2016. What do we think this drawdown has been caused by? Well, I would be lying if I said it, it was, to me, entirely unexpected. Um, 
there was you know such almost evangelical enthusiasm from investors uh, about the theme uh, and at the same te- same time uh, the financial industry is never one to point out issues that might impede uh, flows uh, into vehicles they're managing so uh, you know a number of, of of important issues and contradictions really didn't get examined um, uh, until we uh, got into the more economically challenging times we've seen uh, with major central banks pivoting from uh, goosing the economy with cheap money to raising interest rates to try and keep a lid on inflation. Um, I think the biggest issue, honestly, is a lack of understanding uh, among users uh, of these vehicles uh, as to what they're buying into and what is a reasonable expectation. Um, you know, financial vehicles and uh, especially environmental themes, certainly in terms of timescale, are, are an awkward match. The uh, the people who manage those funds are judged, if they're lucky, sort of on an annual basis, but more often than not quarter to quarter, while the issues that people hope that their, you know, their money will contribute to solving, you know, often take decades, if not more, to to play out in a positive way. And Liz, did you have any kind of feedback maybe on on what kind of Cam was saying there? Do you do you agree or or disagree? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that there is uh, somewhat of a mismatch, um, but but also in addition, um, you know, Cam was just referring to people that think their money is going to solving uh, environmental challenges like climate change, for example, is a great idea. But that's not always the case, right? And I think that the lack of clarity of purpose from both the perspective of the investors, what are they trying to accomplish with a particular investment, as well as the lack of clarity from the investment products themselves? what are they trying to do or why are they doing what they're trying to do in, in seeking which ends? Um, that has led to a lot of frustration and consternation. So, you know, untangling thematic investing from values-based investing, from investing that uses ESG information for investment decisions is really important. And of course, you know, multiple of those uh, reasons that I just listed could be important to a particular product or investor. But when there's a mismatch between people having different expectations um, versus actions, then then you end up with frustration. So for example, clients could, you know, very reasonably be frustrated to find an oil company in a quote unquote ESG fund, you know, with no other context, uh, because that oil company was determined by someone and not quite sure who to have good ESNG practices. But the client thought they were getting a thematic fund or a values-aligned fund and would be upset and not understand what it was they got. So, you know, I, I think there needs to be that clarity of purpose as well, uh, something that Kim sort of touched on, needing to be upfront about the financial design of a product too. So a clean tech fund, for example, will not perform the same as an S&P 500 index fund. Sometimes it could perform better. Sometimes it could perform worse, but it's very narrow. Uh, and so folks, when folks don't understand uh, the products they're invested in, that's when you end up, um, you know, with the potential for these outflows from upset clients. 
Can I jump in here and ask, how, how do you get, a, uh, especially a younger generation that uh, is very used to passive investing, utilizing ETFs and just seeing the money go out in their paycheck, um, how do you get them to engage with the, you know, sometimes fairly impenetrable fine print in the prospectuses, which I think are a key to sort of heading this frustration off at the pass? Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, you know, and as as an active manager, uh, I would think, you know, for example, that's that's one reason why you hire an active manager. But if that's not an option that's available or preferable, you know, even, you know, Nobody wants to read a prospectus. I, I've read and, and contributed to plenty, and I don't want to read them. So I can understand why a younger person in particular or somebody who didn't work in financial services, for example, might be overwhelmed by a document. So, you know, I would say that even in marketing documents, being clear. Um, so, you know, while somebody might be tempted to use vague language in a marketing document, and I do think that um, regulators have a role here to play and that they are increasingly playing that role. Of, of just being more clear because the worst outcome, right, is somebody that thinks they're investing in a clean tech fund, but they're really investing in a screened S&P 500 ETF. You know, they're not accomplishing what they want and what they hoped. Is it their responsibility to find out what they're investing in? Yeah, but it's the provider's responsibility also to make sure that they're clearly describing what they're doing. Has there been a tendency for an investors to focus on the E part of ESG rather than SRI ESG as a whole, or or should they be treated separately as you know SRI and ESG? Yeah, that's a, well. Those are two good questions, different questions. Um, so historically, E environment has been the easiest to measure because uh, companies have been willing and or required uh, to disclose the most environmental information. So topics like. Um, air emissions or water use or waste production. Uh, and, and in addition, climate change is the elephant in almost every room. Um, and it's a, a singular topic that many people care about for a great reason, as you referred to in the beginning. But also there are publicly traded companies with products and services that directly address it. So like a solar panel manufacturer, for example. Social issues, on the other hand, lack both of those. So many investors care deeply about those social issues, but the data has been much harder to come by. Um, so, for example, companies have been uh, reporting to the government uh, demographic information about their workforces for a long time. But until quite recently, you know, they were very hesitant to disclose that to investors. Uh, that's increasing, but that's a phenomenon of like the last two to three years. Um, the SEC is supposed to come out with a proposed rule this fall, uh, later this year, uh, for companies to report on human capital management. That would help a lot on the data side uh, if a rule like that was enacted. But the other thing that uh, some of these social issues or challenges is missing is uh, products and services that address that. Because many of the social issues are about how people are affected. So people in the supply chain, people you know, uh, within the workforce, the labor force, or downstream even, or, or even the consumers for a company. But it's not the same thing where you can say, I'm going to invest in, you know, a solar panel manufacturer, and I'm going to feel good about climate change. It's really hard to find something comparable on the solar, on the, excuse me, social side. So, you know, I, I think it doesn't mean that investors care any less about those issues. 
And I think if anything, the last two years have shown that they care more. It's just more challenging. And so, you know, as practitioners, folks have, have tried to provide what, what they can easily. Um, but I, I think that that is changing with um, both the increased attention from people Investors are people, right? But also, uh, as more information becomes um, available and comparable. Pam or Liz, I'm I'm curious if we have any good examples, either in our EPFR data or maybe in your your research as well, uh, Liz, of of a company or you know stock um, that is an, a great example of an environmental or the E side of ESG and one that shows off that social side. The one that always comes to mind is actually the antithesis of that. Um, When I first started to really field a lot of calls uh, about our ESG coverage, uh, a pretty common one was was, uh, uh, outrage that uh, Caterpillar, uh, the maker of, of heavy earth moving machinery, uh, showed up uh, in a number of the large cap ESG uh, funds that we um, track. Uh, and I would always have to point out that, you know, certainly at the time, while um, Caterpillar is nobody's idea of a particularly green play, um, it is a company that uh, treated its workforce very well uh, and was well run. <laughs> um, and I think that that's sort of an important part of this mix too. Um, there's definitely a tendency, I think, on the part of ESG investors uh, to think that uh, the uh, the issues are static, um, that um, the bad companies are always bad, um, that the issues and technologies uh, are pretty much the same. Whereas, in fact, you know, it's, it's a very rapidly moving environment, uh, another argument for both active management and much better communication, I think, from the providers. Um, but, you know, the, the pace at which... Uh, Countries have been deploying solar energy and, and, and sort of putting up wind farms, you know, is truly breathtaking. Uh, and even sort of less heralded moves are, are making significant contributions, which people tend to ignore or downplay. The largest of our EPFR track sector fund groups with SRI ESG mandates are um, energy sector funds. Um, Their their total net assets account for 30% of the overall equity universe. Energy sector funds as a whole um, have been in the red for quite some time. They've recorded only six inflows in the past 37 weeks. But then looking at the SRI ESG side of of energy, uh, flows have been generally positive uh, in the first quarter of this year, but have since been choppy. And we we have narrowed down on specific groups within energy. Um, so looking at coal, solar, as you kind of mentioned, to kind of get an understanding of this non-renewable and renewable side. Um, you know, we looked at the, the non-renewable energy source of coal and compared that with nuclear and uranium. And the preference for renewable energies is still very clear and present. Liz, you kind of touched on this a, l- a little bit earlier, but what would you say investors' top three priorities are when they're looking at SRI ESG funds within the energy universe? Sure. So for investors that care about climate change, which is many ESG and SRI investors, there's a variety of approaches that they can choose 
uh, one or more to investing in energy. So some firms and asset owners uh, choose to engage with uh, traditional energy companies directly, asking them to change policies or practices, uh, which is an approach my firm took for many years. Uh, other firms uh, might choose divestment, which is not investing in fossil fuel energy companies at all. Uh, some might choose to selectively invest in fossil fuel companies based on specific criteria, uh, which could include the business's balance between high greenhouse gas emission companies and low greenhouse gas uh, companies. So regardless of which approaches a uh, particular investor or asset owner use towards historic energy sources, they can also, as you indicated, uh, allocate capital to new energies. Uh, and that all gets folded under that same umbrella. And so really the the approach selected depends on an investor's time horizon, which is something Cam uh, alluded to earlier, right? Is that climate change and switching out energy systems is a really long dated problem, whereas investments are managed much shorter. But also uh, expectations around how the energy transition will unfold. And that has both you know, economic implications as well as um, sustainability implications. So, you know, you could be somebody that thinks um, you know, that the, the status quo uh, in terms of our energy system is likely to continue on for a while. But, you know, when you look at what has happened to coal uh, and coal-fired power uh, in this country, for example, over the last few decades, uh, it's really decreased because people have a preference for other kinds of power for, for multiple reasons. One would be greenhouse gas emissions. Two would be local air quality impacts and health impacts. Um, three could be impacts on uh, employees, such as coal miners, be that either positive or negative, right? Like economic welfare for workers, but also health impacts from the workers. But then also you have to add in the economic dimension of there have been other energy sources, power sources that are cheaper than coal for a while now. So gas has been cheaper for a lot of the last few decades. And solar now, uh, which the IEA describes as cheaper than coal in almost all applications. So, you know, you need to layer on both your own expectations in terms of, you know, the length of your investment, but also what do you think is going to happen policy-wise as well as economic-wise, commodity-price-wise, regulation-wise. So there's just a lot of different dimensions there. It sounds like kind of a lot of factors go into that. Um, <laughs> yeah. We mentioned tech as well previously. Um, it. it does hold, you know, strong for in, within the equity universe. Um, the SRISG technology sector funds account for roughly 10% of the equity universe. Um, in a recent off-the-wire, EPFR data showed funds with ESG mandates remain significantly overweight technology stocks. Um, ESG funds on average allocate 2.0% more to IT than non-ESG funds, and active ESG funds allocate 9.5% more to IT than their non-ESG counterparts. As investors focus in more on the tech universe, Liz, do you do you think there are potential benefits from the partnership between ESG and technology? First, one thing to say uh, is that, um, you know, I, I alluded earlier um, to the idea that solar panels in particular are a tangible thing you can invest in, uh, solar panel manufacturers, uh, for example. Uh, and solar panel manufacturing companies are classified as semiconductor companies, so they're within tech. So when you're thinking about ESG allocations to clean tech, that shows up in tech, not you know industrials uh, or utilities where you might think. So so that might account for a percent or two of that tech overweight. 
That said, uh, many ESG funds do also have significant tech overweights for a few reasons. Um, many tech companies offer uh, products and solutions that increase efficiency, um, you know, either uh, technology that allows computers to operate more energy efficiency or that allows people to do their job more efficiently, just efficiency in general, uh, you know, the whole cloud migration ecosystem. And so that can provide arguably uh, environmental benefits to other companies, which could be attractive to ESG investors. Uh, they also tend to operate in environmentally responsible manners themselves, uh, particularly software companies, which might not have themselves a huge environmental footprint. Uh, but also many of these companies rely on uh, highly skilled, highly compensated labor forces. So they may perform better on social assessment frameworks. So putting all that together, you can see it, and, uh, you know, the, the performance and the strength and the size and the benchmark, which the tech sector has had over the last few years. Um, you can see why it might be uh, attractive to these investors. Um, but I would say to, to the other part of your question about, like, are there benefits? I would say as, as companies, broadly speaking, not just tech, um, recognize their own attractiveness to ESG investors. There, there's a bit of a virtuous cycle that comes about because as they recognize, like, hey, this might be um, a pool of investors that, that we'd want to attract, companies both increase their disclosure as well as increase their or improve their uh, ESG practices and performance to attract those investors. And then those investors then would recognize and reward those companies with their investment and then they're incented to keep doing so. And that's not unique to tech, but you know, as ESG investors are uh, attracted to those companies, it, it could be having that benefit as well for, for both, both parties. Very insightful. Um... Thank you guys both for your wonderful insight. Uh, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground in the ESG universe, but there's always more to build on and more data to reflect on. So Liz, thank you. And we hope to have you back on, on the show again soon. Thanks very much. We invite uh, EPFR and industry experts to discuss timely trends driving financial markets aimed at arming global investors with a deeper understanding of where money is moving and why. Uh, if you have a topic you would like to discuss or are interested in joining for another episode, don't hesitate to reach out to Kim or myself. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the EPFR Exchange Podcast. For more information, visit epfr.com or epfr.buzzsprout.com. Interested in joining Cam and Kirsten to talk fund flows and allocation data or have a suggestion for the topic of a future podcast? Email us directly at podcast at epfr.com.